0: The Advanced Tech Podcast, providing a spotlight for innovators and disruptors. For links and show notes, and to find out how to sponsor the Advanced Tech Podcast, go to advancedtechmedia.org. You can also find and sponsor us on Patreon. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Google Play, or Android, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating. You can also sponsor us using Bitcoin at advancedtechmedia.org slash sponsor. Welcome to the Advanced Tech Podcast. Very excited to have joining us today our special guest, Andreas Antonopoulos, author of Mastering Bitcoin and Mastering Ethereum.
1: It's a pleasure to be on the show.
0: Calimera. <laughs> Calimera. <laughs> Great. Um, so, Andreas, most of our listeners know your background, but for those who don't, if you could give a broad strokes uh, how you got into Bitcoin and your earlier background as well.
1: Um, Yeah, so I'm a computer geek. I started when I was 10 years old, started programming, and got involved in a variety of computer-related stuff back in the early 90s, fascinated by cypherpunk philosophy and the uh, applications of cryptography in in society and politics. And and then I managed to miss the first three years of Bitcoin. In fact, I first heard about it in 2011, dismissed it because it was in an article about gambling. And then read about it again in 2012, and this time I read the white paper. Derailed my career completely, dropped everything else and focused entirely on this, and, you know, the rest is the weird history. I have no idea how I ended up where I am, but it kind of makes sense if you look at it backwards.
2: So a lot of things in your formative years we briefly chatted about before we started the interview about uh, what got you into uh, that whole mindset of you've been downloading...
1: Yeah, I was Linux. primed. I I was primed for Bitcoin because my background was in information. I worked in information security. I worked uh, my academic career was in distributed systems. You know, early epiphanies with modems and BBSs and the internet and Linux and my first access to the web and things like that all primed me to to be ready for this. And also I think I had this experience before where it almost felt like an epiphany where I I found a technology or discovered something that other people were talking about. And it blew my mind, and I had this kind of big vision of where this was going to go. Like, oh, this internet thing is going to change the world, or modems, or whatever. And each time I had this feeling of epiphany, it took a decade for the vision to play out the way I thought it had. No one believed me when I kept saying, oh, you know, we're all going to be doing things on the internet and computers will all be interconnected. Nobody believed me because I was, what, a 16-year-old who didn't know what I was talking about. By the time Bitcoin came around, when that burst of excitement and enthusiasm came, at this point, it happened to me six times. I'd seen it play out, and I had the confidence to say, oh, no, this is going to happen exactly like this, and here's why, and I'm not going to be a bystander this time.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, there is that kind of 10-year... Curve with any kind of new and emerging technology. And we have uh, we've seen that in a number of different industries. Mm-hmm. I use the
2: same analogy where after a decade, the people that are against an idea give up and say, we couldn't win. There's no way, collectively, I guess, that yes. an entire community or resistance just
1: crumbles. And... Or begins, begins to, to, begins begins to, to crumble. crumble, yeah. yeah. And I, I've, I've used a, an analogy which is very uh, a bit cliche and a bit tongue-in-cheek, which is the, you know, the incumbent industry, in this case the banking industry, is going through the five stages of grief. So they start with <sighs> denial and then anger, bargaining, mm-hmm. um, etc. And so um, we're now in the bargaining stage. So they've gone through denial. Like, this is going to die. It's going to go away. It could never possibly succeed and grow. And after predicting the death of Bitcoin and blockchain, and the various offshoots of that, hundreds of times over the last ten years, and it just refusing to die, at some point they give up on that story. So Then they go into anger, which is, oh, it's terrorists, criminals, pornographers, dangerous people. This is the worst thing that ever happened to the world. It's going to consume all the energy on the planet and make global warming explode in our face. And then That story isn't flying either, because they said the same stuff about the internet. In fact, the parallels are astonishingly close. They said that the internet would only be used by pornographers, criminals, pedophiles, terrorists... um, until the rest of us used it. They also said that if you extrapolate the rate of growth of data centers and data storage facilities, the internet will consume 25% of global energy by the year 2010. That's what they said. You can find these articles on Forbes. Uh, Of course, it's less than 2% now. We all use it, and we primarily use it to share videos of cats and not commit acts of terrorism. But they're now saying the same things about Bitcoin. They're doing the same kind of unscientific extrapolations, which uh, I find hilarious. It's like the argument of, Madam, I'm extremely concerned about the rate of your pregnancy. Uh, At eight months, your belly is already this big. At this rate, in two years, you'll be as big as this room. That's the kind of extrapolation science that they're using to calculate energy consumption for the internet back then and Mm -hmm. Bitcoin now. Uh, It's just shoddy work. Nobody's buying it. Anybody who does a minimum of critical thinking laughs at these assertions. So that's the anger phase. And then we go into bargaining. And bargaining is the whole... Well, I mean, Bitcoin is obviously a silly, disruptive, subversive idea just for criminals, but blockchain, oh, we're all over that. We're going to do that, and it's the most amazing thing. And look, we can do blockchain, and IBM and Microsoft and everybody else is on board, and we're all doing happy blockchain. Of course, what they're calling blockchain is this kind of embrace, extend, extinguish approach, where they strip it of all of the disruptive characteristics and try to cram it into this sanitized corporatist enterprise version, which is going to allow them to continue to do business as usual. The whole point here is to remove any possibility of disruption. Of course, that's just both boring and doesn't actually produce anything. All of these projects are now failing, because they're realizing it's a very inefficient platform to do business as usual. The next stage is going to be depression. and and finally we reach acceptance. And it's the same game we saw uh, on the internet, right? Depression usually comes around the same time that the biggest bubble bursts. Uh, We've already had that happen in the blockchain space. Um, And two or three years from now, people are going to go, hey, is that Bitcoin thing still around? And that's when we win, because it will be still around.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: I mean, people don't realize that it's been a decade. And uh, there's been a whole lot of, you know, disruption, testing, attacks, etc. And so most people that are now aware of it don't have a backstory of of the groundwork that's already there. Especially the network effect that's already in place.
1: There's also a lot of expectations about how this is going to play out and uh, a lot of false comparisons. So people are like, well, in its first decade, the internet had already become mainstream. I'm like, which decade were you counting? from when you found out about it in ninety one until 2001? Because the first decade of the internet was 1969 to 1979. Accurately speaking, if you want to be gracious, you could say the first decade of the internet was maybe 1975 to 1985. You found out about it in 1991, and then you watched the big decade of the internet, but that wasn't the first decade. Right? Of course. Um, and so I think that's where we are with this technology. We're in the raw infrastructure stage, where everything's clunky and kludgy and weird, and the only people really interested in it are mostly academics. And We're beginning to get into that boom cycle of the early dot-com era, uh, where the suits have arrived in droves and are trying to buy the technology. I remember having a meeting in the early 90s uh, with a very prominent large company in the UK, where I explained to them the, you know, the historic importance and revolutionary potential of the internet. And they were kind of skeptical because I was a kid. And Then they said, okay, so let's assume that what you're saying is correct. How do we buy this? <laughs> and what they wanted to do was buy the internet so that they could own it. I was like, no, you don't understand. The whole point of this is that no one owns it. was like, could we buy some of the main companies? And, you know, that was the end of the conversation. That company, by the way, didn't do very well. Um, and that's the stage we are with with Bitcoin, where the, the big finance companies are going, oh, let's, let's just buy some blockchain companies.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've seen the same thing uh, in a parallel, of course, in the internet itself, you know. Microsoft having MSN and uh, others, and then also email, right? I
1: mean, yes, the attempt to create closed yeah. gardens and um, carefully curated, controlled versions. Yeah, they'll have safe, of AOL, safe, safe email for you, right? Safe email, yeah, right. right. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it's it's in the fringes that all the exciting things happen, because that's where you've, you unleash the creativity and innovation. And when you try to curate it and carefully control it, you, you suck out all of that innovative energy. And we're now repeating it on a different scale with Facebook, you know, or other social media like that, where they're trying to create these very carefully curated gardens, and they're running into problems. They're both failing to make it safe, (laughs) neo-Nazis everywhere, but they're also um, sucking out all of the innovative potential and creating these sterile backwaters, which eventually are only populated by grandparents.
2: (laughs) It's pretty boring.
1: I mean, uh, there's a lot of people, and I'm sure everyone has in their circles, that
2: have quit Facebook and things like this, so we are seeing the beginnings of uh, giving up on something shiny or somewhere else, or they're... Or
1: right, yes, they boring like and it.
2: dangerous at the same time. And mm-hmm. also um, maybe the the fact that grandparents are on there makes it less. You know, that's interesting yeah, to everybody
1: yeah. <laughs> else, yes. Um, Absolutely. I, I think we're going to... These themes mm-hmm. play out again and again and again, Um I I use the, the analogies to previous technological advancements to highlight how this is going to play out, how incumbent industries respond to disruptive threats, and how they go through these phases of trying to adapt to rapidly disrupting change without really being able to absorb it, because that's what disruptive means. It's not absorbable. Trying to resist trying to regulate and legislate around the problem, trying to close down the markets and competition, and eventually fail. Um, a few succeed. Those that are willing to most aggressively cannibalize their existing businesses. It's the innovator's dilemma, um, mm-hmm. as has been well expressed by other people. But um, it, it's funny because one of the things that happens again and again when you see this technological disruption is the incumbents say, we've been around for centuries, we're not going to succumb to this. And that kind of sense of the future will be as the past was. Like you can point to the newspaper industry or even the TV industry and say, listen, what happened to them will happen to you. Banks are not special. Finance isn't special, but we're regulated for safety. (laughs) Really? You don't think communications (laughs) companies were? Um, It's going to happen to you. Software is eating the world. We didn't just invent a payments note. This is turning money into software. And when you turn money into software and software is eating the world, it will eat banking. Not in the short term, but in the long term. It's just a matter of time, as with any of these things. It's it's just a matter of time, and (laughs) resistance is futile.
0: (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Um, So I think now would be a nice segue into the Blockchain Africa Conference talk that you gave back in March of 2017. What I really liked is the fact that you said, you know, it's Bitcoin, not blockchain. Mm -hmm. And why? I'd love to get your perspective on that.
1: So it's interesting because um, I was one of the people who tried to explain that this was more than just money and try to find a framework to explain that it was more than just money. I was was among the people who started using the term blockchain to try to paint a broader vision of this as a platform of trust, etc. The problem was, of course, that then that that got sucked into the Embrace-Extend marketing cycle and got turned into something completely different. So a blockchain is a necessary but not sufficient component of what we're doing here, and To say Bitcoin is a blockchain is a bit like saying a car is a transmission. It's not. A transmission is an absolutely necessary but not sufficient component to do anything useful. Um, and it's not even the most important invention that's part of a car, the internal combustion engine is. And in fact, in, in this particular case, it's more akin to the bank saying, oh, you know, to the early horse carriage manufacturers saying, well, the real invention behind the automobile is the pneumatic tire. And look, we can put pneumatic tires on horse carriages and we get all of the advantages of automobiles. You know, smooth rides, fantastic. Missing the point completely, that's not the real invention. Blockchain is a data structure. And the really interesting thing is who gets to write into the blockchain. That is controlled by a consensus algorithm. And the interesting part of the Bitcoin consensus algorithm is that that power is diffused, decentralized, um, using this peer-to-peer mechanism across thousands of participants who are anonymous, and who are operating under a game theory model. You take away that consensus algorithm, and you centralize that function, and then a blockchain is just a very inefficient cryptographically signed database. It doesn't give you any of the things that you would expect. For example, people often say blockchains are immutable. No, they're not. Blockchains are just data structures. What makes them immutable is a consensus algorithm that cannot be centralized. If you take away the consensus algorithm that cannot be centralized, they're not immutable. Uh, Recently, I was having an argument with someone about whether you could use these in voting. Again, is it or is it not decentralized? If if we do voting through a blockchain, and that blockchain is run on three servers, and Brian Kemp is in charge of all three because he's the Secretary of State and he's stealing this election, it doesn't change anything. In fact, it makes it more opaque and easier for that kind of person to steal an election. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I, I I feel bad because... I was the instigator, and now I have to be the debunker of the same idea, right? because it got co-opted. But blockchain isn't this magical pixie dust that you sprinkle over a technology, and suddenly it becomes immutable, censorship-resistant, neutral, borderless, and peer-to-peer. Um, in fact, it's the peer-to-peer component that makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to wrestle that term back. One of the things I've tried to do is provide people with some questions to ask, the follow-up questions. You say, I have a blockchain. Okay, great. That doesn't mean much. Now let me ask you the follow-up questions. Is it decentralized? Is it neutral? Is it borderless? Who gets to write in it? Is it censorship-resistant? Is it peer-to-peer? If it's none of those things, then you haven't achieved anything other and slapping some pneumatic tires on a horse carriage and called it the next big thing, right?
0: Absolutely. One of the things that I really like about the technology is the potential that it has for leapfrogging, uh, the social impact that it has. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
1: There's, there's, I guess you might call it the, the Silicon Valley conundrum, which is that... While many very interesting technologies emerge in Silicon Valley, ultimately, the last population they can serve, or we need them to serve, is Silicon Valley itself. Um, The big impact of most of the technologies that we've seen come out of tech centers like Silicon Valley have not been in the first world. They've been in the third world. Mm -hmm. And that leapfrogging effect, whether it's cell phones, whether it's internet communications, whether it's access to advanced mobile computers, all of these technologies have had a far bigger impact. And at first it's misleading because, you know, the first people you see carrying cell phones are very important CEOs. Um, but their life isn't changed by that as much as, you know, a Nokia 3110 changes the life of a Kenyan farmer by connecting them to a world of possibilities. And eventually you get this inversion of priorities. Ironically, I find that today carrying a cell phone is not a status symbol. It says you work as a blue-collar laborer, (laughs) you know, you're a tradesperson. (laughs) Uh, If you have a Bluetooth headset, you're probably a plumber, an electrician, or someone who has to be on the phone. The status symbol is having a secretary carry your phone for you that you don't touch, because people can't call you directly. That's what a CEO does nowadays. It's very, very um, sophisticated to not have a phone. Ironically, today we're trying to see how will this technology fit in the Western environment. Can I use Bitcoin to buy coffee at Starbucks? The truth is, I don't need Bitcoin to buy coffee at Starbucks. This is not a payment network that's going to really facilitate retail transactions today, because that niche is already occupied pretty well by a pretty efficient system. That system, which is Visa, MasterCard, credit cards, the existing banking system, system has a nasty side effect of gradually eroding our democracy to shit. In the long term, that's not where the effect is going to be. Meanwhile, there are six billion people who barely have access to any form of international finance, multi-currency systems, or even banking itself. For them, this system of currency, when they're surrounded by a political and financial environment where organized crime runs their government, organized crime runs their banks, and they're indistinguishable, in that environment where people are disconnected from retail finance, as we call it, the ability to do money as a protocol can be life-changing. Now, it's going to take time. We can't easily roll out these solutions, because the cost and ease of use, and the fees, etc., are not there. Just like a cell phone that's the size of a suitcase that costs $3,000, is not going to end up in the hands of a Kenyan farmer. But we know how to solve that. That's an optimization problem. Ironically, eventually it comes full circle and it starts changing the lives of uh, Westerners when it starts enabling applications that couldn't exist before. So the question is not, how do I buy coffee at Starbucks? I can already do that with a Visa card. The question is, what can I do with a digital currency, programmable money, that I can't do with a Visa card? And that's where things get interesting. Because uh, a fully online, very flexible, very liquid, programmable money that can do perhaps not just micropayments but nano-payments, and can do them on a timescale of milliseconds, with full clearing and settlement, that changes a lot of things. That enables applications that are simply not possible with today's markets. I think that's exciting for Westerners, but that's a good decade out, if not longer. So today, who ends up using this? People in Venezuela trying to escape a collapsing economy, people in Turkey trying to exit their money from uh, a dictator who's using the currency to um, uh, basically to control his population. So those are the applications today.
0: So I was recently at Baltic Honey Badger, and there was an announcement about the Bitcoin Foundation, the new and improved Bitcoin Foundation. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I'm... one of my favorite movies is The Life of Brian, which is a Monty Python's movie. And there's this fantastic scene where, you know, the Messiah is trying to tell his followers to think for themselves and not follow him. And he shouts out to the crowd, think for yourselves, and they all repeat verbatim and in unison, we will think for ourselves. (laughs) Don't listen to me. We will not listen to you, they chant. (laughs) Um, People have this innate need for leadership and to follow someone with an authoritative voice. Even when you explain to them very, very carefully that this is a movement of rules without rulers, a leaderless system that operates on very specific rules, but no one can actually change those rules without complete consensus across all participants. And it's like, okay, great, fantastic. So who's in charge? No, 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 wait. You don't understand. No one's in charge. There are no leaders. Everyone has to participate. Ah, so Satoshi's in charge? No, no, it's not. There is no. <laughs> Satoshi has no more power over the system than I do. Oh. So you're in charge. (laughs) And and this kind of desire to always identify the leader is because of our almost two centuries long uh, industrial revolution based hierarchical organization culture that is hammered into your brain from birth. This is an amorphous, ad-hoc, peer-to-peer, emergent system through networking interactions... of independent systems that all have authoritative verification of specific consensus rules that no one can modify. All of that means there is no one in charge. So what do we do next? We elect an association, a committee, a foundation. We try to create some semblance of leadership. One of the fascinating things about this space is that a lot of the people who are circling around this technology and trying to co-opt it they're not interested in changing the status quo they're not interested in changing the hierarchical organization they're not interested in changing the fact that everything has to be approved by another layer of management further up they're interested in inserting themselves into that leadership position And it becomes almost a litmus test of your character and personality. So if someone tells you that there's a leaderless movement, a leaderless technology, some people hear that and say, oh, great, everyone has power. And other people hear that and say, you mean there's a vacancy at the top? I'd like to apply. (laughs) Um, And I don't know why we would have a foundation. It creates the illusion that there is leadership and of course the foundation has no power this isn't the first foundation right we've had more and more of these emerge over time mm-hmm. and it's about okay let's gather up funds and then distribute these funds through a committee etc well we have better fundraising mechanisms now and and as much as there is a lot of scams in the ico space we're actually beginning to touch on a couple of algorithmic crowdfunding, fundraising possibilities that are much more interesting than do-it-by-committee. And also, we already have the do-it-by-committee model. We don't need another one. So I think it's harmless in some ways. I think it's irrelevant in many ways. But at the same time, it is a bit harmful because it gives people the illusion that someone's in charge. Very fair
0: point. So I've watched a lot of your talks, and they were very instrumental in me learning about Bitcoin, uh, which I've only recently, I've only been in for about a year. Mm-hmm. And I know that you teach at University of Nicosia as well. Mm-hmm. So for people that are new to Bitcoin, where do you recommend they start?
1: Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. I don't think it's just for Bitcoin. I mean, this is now a sprawling ecosystem of thousands of currencies, most of which are crap. But there are some interesting models coming out of this ecosystem. Um, There's a lot of open source resources out there. And I'm committed to doing things in an open source fashion using Creative Commons licenses. So you don't actually need to spend money to get an education in this space. And I think that's really important if we really want to make this available to the world in as many languages as possible and reach as many people as possible. It has to be on a zero cost basis. So there's hundreds of videos that I've published on YouTube, which are all Creative Commons, and you can read all of my books are published either the videos or the books themselves in source code, again under Creative Commons licenses, and you can read, watch, share, mash up. I teach a course, as you mentioned, which you took, which is, again, an open course available for free. And there's tons of other resources. I don't think you should need to pay to get an education here. One of the problems is that you will end up having to choose very carefully what your sources are. And it requires a significant degree of critical thinking, because there's a lot of scam artists. there's a lot of misleading information. Uh, About a year ago, I was at a conference in Singapore, and I met someone who came to me and said, I am so interested in learning about Bitcoin. I've been working in the blockchain space for more than a year now, and I just found out about Bitcoin, Uh, which blew my mind. (laughs) But I had actually predicted back in 2013, I said, you know, the banks are going to co-opt this, they're going to train developers, and eventually those developers are going to stumble across Bitcoin. They're going to be like, wait, there's an open version of this. This is far more interesting. And they're going to come over to our side. So let the banks spend money training these people. That's exactly what happened. They had had a bank that had trained this person in blockchain, had managed to deliver entire presentations on blockchain without mentioning the dreaded B-word, Bitcoin, once. And this person eventually stumbled back to the genesis and like, oh, there's an open system too. (laughs) If you truly believe that open systems win, people will find their way. But there's a lot of distraction. And one of the dangerous things when dealing with protocols for money is that the opportunity to set up scams, Ponzi schemes, pyramid schemes, exit scams, and various other things like that is extremely high. So you have to be super careful and super skeptical um, when you approach this space. And generally speaking, if it seems too good to be true, it's probably a scam.
0: Very sage advice. I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Uh, you mentioned critical thinking, and I, I think we're starting to see, as people are becoming more empowered uh, in this space, and I think the Internet is really one of the, the catalysts of that, could you recommend any critical thinking resources or philosophers or readings that people might dig into?
1: Oh, dear. Um I got all of my critical thinking from my dad, and unfortunately that's not a resource I can make available to others. But um, <laughs> I I don't really know where you go for that. I don't know how you learn that if you don't already have it. I mean, it's such a fundamental part of education, and it's completely lacking in most educational systems. Um, it's a big problem. I think one of the reasons it's a big problem is that mostly people outsource their critical thinking to authorities so they look for someone else to do the thinking for them and say well so and so said so therefore it must be true and in today's world that's a very dangerous thing because it's so easy to propagate misinformation and it's so easy to wrap it up in glitzy graphics and fancy words and lots of hype and buzzwords and just confuse people and you know by the time You know, a lie has sprinted around the world three times by the time the truth kind of limps its way out the front door. So I I don't know, honestly, where you get critical thinking skills. I think one of the things about working in this space that involves money is that there is an education. Unfortunately, there's an education by fire. You get your critical thinking skills forged in the adversarial conditions and the scammers, meaning that... You try something, and then you lose money because someone steals it from you. And then next time, you're a bit more careful to give money to strangers.
2: It's like someone trying to learn poker with uh, pretend money. It's uh, it's much different as most poker books end up saying, like, if you really want to learn poker, you better play with real money.
1: And lose some. And lose some, because there's no other way to learn it. And and the (laughs) traditional argument in investment circles is that regulators will protect you from scams. Of course, they won't, and we know that. But the problem is even worse, which is if you depend on regulators to protect you from scams, then regulators become the weak point, because if they're going to do your critical thinking and vetting for you, When they get it wrong, Bernie Madoff, um, (laughs) then there's nothing there to protect you, right? And so the only way you can protect people from scams is not more regulation or vetting by a third party. People have to develop that maturity by mistakes, by learning from mistakes. And you can warn people. Nobody thanks me when I tell them that what they've just invested in is a pyramid scheme. In fact, they hate me for saying that because I'm undermining their ability to get more people into the pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. Um, And they want to believe that. In fact, the the best answer I've had, which happens a lot is, but how can you say it's a Ponzi scheme? I've made so much money off it. (laughs) 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 That should be the first red flag. Of course you did. Um, Anyhow, but it's it's very hard to navigate in this space. Um, And I don't have any good answers. Other than be careful, be very careful.
0: Again, great advice. And I agree, it is very much a trial by fire. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you have to pick your resources. And, you know, there's always disinformation with information. So you've got to be careful what exactly you're reading, who's sponsoring it, Mm -hmm. um, all of that stuff. So you've recently wrapped your latest book, Mastering Ethereum. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that process?
1: So this is my second O'Reilly book, Um, which still blows my mind, because I can't believe I actually wrote an O'Reilly book. But mastering Ethereum is my foray into understanding Ethereum. And I have an ulterior motive, which is that in order to learn a subject, teaching it is the first step. So um, it forces you to clarify your thinking and to really make sure you understand something in depth... when you try to explain it in simple terms to someone else. And so I used my first book to learn Bitcoin to a level of depth that I didn't have before. And I tried to use Mastering Ethereum to learn Ethereum to a level of depth I didn't have before. It's a, it's a classic O'Reilly book. so it, it starts from a very gentle introduction and then gradually escalates and gets quite complex and quite in-depth. It's a good reference guide. And it's about smart contracts, uh, smart contract programming and decentralized applications. So how to use not just Ethereum, because although that's in the title, it's more about smart contract virtual machine-based blockchains. So it applies equally to Ethereum Classic and Rootstock and a whole bunch of other similar systems that have emerged. you know The best thing I can say about this book is, at the end of it, it's the book I wish I had when I started the journey. And it would have made the journey so much easier if I had it, and that was my goal when I wrote it. It's like, can I make this journey a bit easier, less painful for the people who will follow it? Um, and so we'll see whether that succeeded. It's the first edition. first edition is never perfect. It's just good enough to meet the deadline. Um, I think the second edition is where I I can polish it a bit further. We'll see how that goes.
0: Cool. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, in some of your talks, there's a a phrase, keep Bitcoin weird. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) And you're advocating for that. Is
1: that because of Portland? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's actually, Uh it's very similar to the Portlandia and Portland um, slogan. I believe in weirdness. Um, I think that trying to narrow the range of expression, the range of experience, the range of uh, difference between human beings, between thoughts, between philosophies, worldviews, etc., is damaging to a society. And the more you closer you try to conform to certain ideas, and those ideas become stale, they become stilted, it reduces culture. And so... People feel um, often threatened by things that are strange, weird, and different. When we're talking about a technology that is as instrumental society as money, uh, bringing in a whole new way of looking at it and removing many of the institutional controls, and saying, we will do this a different way, we're not going to have other people control and vet this, it's going to be a collaborative system. That is terrifying to a lot of people. And it's also weird. It's it's intensely weird and strange and different from their current experience. But I like to remind people, if you were trading in gold coins and someone suddenly gave you a paper certificate that said redeemable for one gold coin and said this is the exact same thing that was far more intensely weird than what we're doing now. And it took people hundreds of years to get used to this idea that paper was a good form of money. Um, It isn't. Um, and, (laughs) And the reason I want to suggest that we keep it weird is because that's the fountainhead of innovation in any culture. And if you try to take this weird innovative technology and dress it up in a suit and give it a haircut, and make it palatable to the very, very conservative board of directors of your company who do not want to change a thing, because the system they're in works for them, even if it doesn't work for a few billion people who are outside of that system, then you end up with nothing. You end up with nothing useful, nothing interesting. So when I say keep it weird... You you have to embrace the discomfort, the weirdness, the strangeness, and accept that the only way the world ever changes is because of people who, in their time, are the heretics, the weirdos, the crazies, and eventually they're proven correct. But at first, they're strongly dismissed and resisted by the rest of society. Nothing would ever change unless we had those weirdos. One of the things that's unique about this is that often the truth itself, as the saying goes, is a revolutionary act. When someone takes two glass lenses they've carefully ground down, puts them at the two ends of the tube, and says, just take a look up there and see if we are the center of the universe and that simple act of looking is the most revolutionary act in <laughs> in a medieval society and coming back and saying now how about governments are not in charge of money how about we take the same concept of state and church separation which seems obvious to western societies at least And we extend that and say, how about we have money and state separation, because the two, when they are mixed, become corrupt and toxic. How about we do not give other people the ability to control where our money flows? We do not turn commerce and finance into deputized arms of law enforcement at first, and eventually the military, and weaponize our commercial and financial infrastructure in order to protect ourselves from these imaginary threats. Because when we give all of that control to people, they become the real threats. Uh, And that erosion of democracy is far more damaging than the possibility of someone using this crazy, weird internet money to buy some weed, God forbid. Um, You know, that is a radical proposition in a culture where we have steeped ourselves in the idea that the only way we will remain safe... is by giving up freedoms, giving up privacy, and allowing one group, elected or not, to do surveillance on every activity we participate in. When we discuss these ideas, the instinctive reaction is, won't somebody please think of the children? And I am thinking of the children. I don't want them to grow up in a fascist dystopia of surveillance money where that power can never be taken back. And that's where we're heading. So, you know, this is a very radical change. And in order to push that change, we do have to keep it weird.
0: Cool. Very, very succinctly put. Yeah.
2: Great place for it, too. We're at... Uh... The Siegel Conference, which is an open source initiative. So we have a lot of weirdos here (laughs) keeping things real, which is good.
1: Yes. And interestingly enough, one of the things that I've learned from open source is I remember in the early days of open source when I kept telling people, look, this is going to out innovate every other industry. They're like, oh, surely not. I mean, after all, IBM and Microsoft have billions of dollars and they can just buy developers. They can just buy developers who can out-compete, and out-code, and out-blah, blah, 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 blah. blah. And the fundamental misunderstanding there is that you cannot buy creativity, you cannot buy passion, and you cannot buy commitment. In fact, the very act of trying to buy those things erases them. So you end up with a whole bunch of programmers in cubicles who hate their job, are not passionate, do not give a shit about the software they're shipping, have no intention of putting their name on it, right? And eventually they spend their evenings working on Linux, undermining the very company that pays for them. Um, And the open source software wins. And it did win conclusively until eventually now Microsoft is an open source company, which blows my mind. But we came full circle. So when people tell me today that... You can't compete against the big banks, because they will throw their billions, and they will build their blockchains, which will be polished and properly made with serious <laughs> professional programmers. And They can put their billions into these markets, and they will crush your movement. I laugh at that, because once again, you cannot buy creativity, and you cannot buy passion, and most importantly, you cannot serve the communities that they have left behind quite comfortably, because they don't care. I was delivering this kind of speech in a banking and security conference where one of the bankers, as I was talking about the undocumented, the disenfranchised, the unbanked here in the United States, 18%, 60 million people who don't have access to banking services, one of the people in the audience, a very serious lady who worked for a bank, raised her hand and said, but why should we give bank accounts to illegal immigrants? And I said, well, you shouldn't. We will.
0: That's awesome.
1: You touched
2: on a point about security and the same thing you said about open source in general and software. I see, again, being centralized at the level of, well, you know, Microsoft or Apple, they have a really big security department. Mm -hmm. they'll make sure things are secure Mm -hmm. and so it's okay to have that as a proprietary set of instructions on the processor somewhere um how does this thinking um permeate so many centralization ideas and i see it in security and bugs me to no end to see that if you can't have it vetted by the vast population of the world how can you even dare to say it's secure
1: well, it's. I mean, the Internet has been a 25-year story of learning how centralized security is unachievable. Every single um, bubble we've tried to build to keep the inside inside and the outside outside has been pierced. And it doesn't matter how much money and how much security and how much coercion and violence and authority we throw at the problem. No one can keep information secure, not the NSA, not North Korea... No one. And the reason they can't is because if you hoard and centralize control, then it becomes very easy to do it. If I have the information of a million people centralized in one database, I have to provide one million times stronger security than each one of those people would have to apply to their own single record. There is no one million times stronger security. And that's the fundamental problem. that centralization doesn't scale. So if I collect the information, I have to amplify the security by at least a linear amount that's equivalent, and that's impossible to do. So in the end, we've discovered the only way to keep information secure is to not collect it, to not aggregate it, to not centralize it. Uh, That lesson seems to continue to escape most of the regulators and corporations and big businesses who think that they're just one magic bullet, one just uh, golden key for a backdoor, one crazy encryption scheme away from solving this problem and finally gaining control over information. We know better than that. The history is clear on that. Probably one of my favorite talks that I've done on this topic is called "Bubble Boy and the Sewer Rat and it compares the two security models of decentralization and dynamic resilience with protecting things by encasing them in a bubble that's impermeable. And what happens when you protect something by encasing it in a bubble is is it becomes allergic to everything. It becomes weakened. Its immune system gradually disappears until eventually the tiny hole in the bubble causes it to die because um, it hasn't been exposed to pathogens. The way you protect something is not by limiting its exposure. Mm -hmm. Quite the opposite. You train it through repeated exposure. And in that model the traditional corporate security model is a sickly child inside a transparent plastic bubble that's allergic to everything and their response to that is to layer another bubble around it and another bubble and try to isolate it further and bitcoin is the sewer rat which is exposed to everything every day, is carrying three different strains of the plague and treats it as if it's a minor cold, is missing part of its leg and has a mangled ear, but is still alive and will be alive for a much longer time because its immune system has been exposed to the worst pathogens again and again and again. We live that security model in Bitcoin every day. Bitcoin is not secure because it's not being attacked. Bitcoin is secure because it's being attacked 24 hours a day for 10 years. And it hasn't been cracked because there's no one place where you can apply pressure enough to crack it. And because it doesn't stop changing, it dynamically responds to attacks and gets better. Every attack that disrupts it or delays it or causes a slight degradation of service, becomes a lesson that teaches its immune system to be better next time, so that it becomes more and more resilient, as Nicholas Nassim Taleb says, anti-fragile. And it's very difficult to explain that the best way to have a system that's secure is to remove control, is to take a step back and say, unleash it into the world and let it learn how to remain solid and secure. Uh, decentralize it so that no one has control. That goes against every instinct that large corporations and governments have. But in the end, we don't have to prove anything to anyone. All we have to do is survive while the centralized systems, one by one by one, fail because they're fragile. And we now live in a world where the financial system has never been more fragile. and It can't be saved by protecting it from crisis. It can only be made more fragile. So every time someone goes, hey, is this Bitcoin thing still around? We win. Yeah.
2: There's an interesting uh, FUD that's uh, thrown around in the open source uh, communities. Uh, you know, you have uh, efforts such as Linux, which is the basis for a lot of our infrastructure. Now, uh, here's uh, here's a list of a thousand open security issues on Linux. But, uh, you know, here at Apple or Microsoft, our list is only a thousand long. Mm-hmm. What's well, a good way to present that uh Lack of world vision on the source code on the closed source system versus the open source system, such as Bitcoin. But from a perspective of, of something that we already have accepted mm-hmm. uh, into the millions uh, in the population, it's always like FUD. Like, oh look at it. you have a, you have a million issues open on security. There's this hole, this hole in in in, yes. in this Linux mm-hmm. and this OpenBSD or whatever. Right. Uh, we have all of these issues, and uh, so this is why you should continue to use. Uh, I don't know exchange for your email in an office. You see this argument over and over again. How do you represent that exposure you talked about, the rat, mm-hmm. yes. um, in terms that people, in technology that people are already exposed to so they can see the parallels?
1: I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings is the distinction between a uniform monoculture and a system that is diverse. Which Linux? Mm-hmm is the question I would ask. Yeah, it's probably referring to the kernel itself. Right. It's referring to the kernel itself, but the kernel itself exists in a thousand different instantiations, Mm -hmm. packaged a thousand different ways, configured a thousand different ways Mm -hmm. on systems that are in different stages of development and maturity. They don't all share the same vulnerabilities. So as a result, if you have one of these vulnerabilities, the number of systems you can exploit is fairly low. Now compare that to a monoculture system like Microsoft Exchange. The problem is that if you find one significant critical vulnerability in Windows Ten, you can exploit it on every single device because they're a monoculture. So it's like the difference between a wild field full of you know um, a meadow full of wild flowers and a field full of Monsanto genetically engineered corn that's all cloned from a single organism. And what happens there, just like has happened with the potato blight or the banana, we're on a second revision of bananas, by the way, the Mm. previous one doesn't exist anymore, and the newer one is is in danger of being eradicated because it's a monoclone. Monocultures are extremely fragile. And so in software, the monoculture means that if you have a a sufficiently advanced vulnerability, it can burn like a wildfire through the entire monoculture. Now, that's also a problem in blockchain technology. So having diversity of software is different. But there's another interesting thing that hasn't happened before, which is the incentive structure changes dramatically when what you're protecting is money. So when you turn money into software, it changes everybody's motivation on how to protect that. People who didn't give a shit about privacy on their smartphones suddenly become security experts because they put a bitcoin wallet on that phone. And now they're taking, they're learning all about two-factor authentication and encrypted storage and how to do <laughs> all of the things they need to do for resilience and backup and security, which they didn't do before, because they didn't put any value on their private information. Money has a way of focusing people's risk model. One of the interesting things is that Bitcoin is now pushing the development of cryptography and information security on the systems that are affected faster than any technology before it, because it forces people to focus their risk model and their attention. And some interesting new security models have arisen, like, for example, putting honeypots full of Bitcoin on your servers, because most hackers can't resist them. If they find a Bitcoin wallet that's easy to take, they just take that before they move on to the next server. And now I have a nice big red flag that my server is being compromised. Um, you know, I, I use that security mechanism myself. I have a multi It's cheaper than hiring, uh- A company to the year audit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just just have a multi-sig wallet. It's one of 15 that's on my 15 servers. And if it gets hacked, I just look at which key redeemed it, and I know which server got compromised and shut it down, and I'm done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's such an irresistible target. So software money changes the security model quite significantly. And I think one of the interesting things now is that we're beginning to discover how game theory and the careful management of incentive structures can be used as a primary security model. Almost all of our security today is based on controls, and ironically, Bitcoin doesn't have that many controls. What it has is an incentive model, and that incentive model theoretically can be broken by what's called a 51% attack. In practice, no one has really tried to do that. The reason is, it's far more profitable to play by the rules. Uh, and that simple system of incentives has proven to be enormously resilient and very secure. Mm-hmm. So how can we use incentive systems in game theory to improve security in other systems? I think that's a much more interesting question than, um, you know, is, is this type of software development or that type of software development more secure? We've broadened our horizons on how to do security architecture now.
2: Cool. Excellent
1: explanation.
0: Um, so we, or just, we're after 12. I've uh, got a couple more questions if you have time. Yeah, no problem. Awesome. Okay. So um, I guess for 2019, if people are looking to see some of your talks, what conferences are you looking forward to in 2019?
1: So my strategy uh, for the last two years has been to not preach to the choir. So I'm not doing too many Bitcoin, blockchain conferences. I'm mostly talking at developer, open source, um, mainstream conferences where I can talk to people who do not know or do not care what Bitcoin is, or why it matters, or how it might affect them. Same thing for Ethereum or other technologies that I talk about. So mostly mainstream conferences. And my schedule takes a lot of work um, to figure out. So I have a mailing list on Antonopoulos.com, where people can sign up and they can specify a geography that they're interested in, and then they'll get a notification if I'm going to do an event in that geography. But other than that, it's pretty much worldwide uh, moving as fast as I can and, and getting my strategic goal for 2019, which is the same as this year, is delivering high-quality, neutral education to as many people as possible and as many languages as possible. Um, last year, enormous push to develop uh, Spanish language content and to get translation subtitles of all of the work I've done already, because South America is in a rolling currency crisis right now. and They absolutely need this information. And I'm continuing that work into 2019. Ironically, that means I'm not doing as much in North America. People are like, when are you coming to New York? New York doesn't need this. So instead, I'm going to Santiago, Chile, and, uh, you know, (laughs) I went to Vietnam and uh, places like that. They need it. Um, And I'm going to continue to focus on the places that need it. South America, Central America, Southeast Asia, and uh, Africa.
0: Awesome. Um, And then finally, we always like closing out the show asking uh, if you have any questions for our listeners or anything you'd like to impart as a last closing thought.
1: I think the, the two closing thoughts is to dispel two major misunderstandings about what you should do with... like If you're intrigued, if you found this interesting and you're like, oh, this Bitcoin thing sounds like it's a bit more than I thought originally. Maybe there's more to it than uh, geek gambling money. Um, what do you do with that? Well, first of all, don't treat it as an investment. This is not a penny stock that you're going to go speculate and get rich quick. That's a big fundamental problem with people's attitude towards it. Treat it as a technology where you can essentially develop skills that are marketable, useful skills, that can be applied not just to this, but to a broader industry for at least a decade or two into the future. This is your opportunity to learn how to do websites in 1995, how to do iOS apps in 2007. This is your opportunity to build a new career, a new skill set. That's going to pay off a hell of a lot more than, let's say, if you buy a cryptocurrency and just hold it. Uh, Although that's also a viable strategy, it's much more risky. Um, You can lose the cryptocurrency, it can decline in value. Your skills you won't lose unless you suffer some brain injury. But for the most part, you'll keep those skills, and they'll have applicability in a broader scenario. That's one. The other one is, if you do want to acquire cryptocurrency, Don't think about buying it, think about earning it. There's a fundamental change in perspective that happens when what you offer is your labor, services, products, rather than your money, and you stop thinking of it as, I'll exchange this type of money for that type of money, or buy a stake or part of this. Instead, you say, I'm now offering my service, my labor, for payment in this form. Then you become part of an economy. Then you start thinking of it as a market exchange. And it changes your perspective when you earn it. Awesome.
2: Something do we have anything else? Um, anything I else mean, I, I, could add, I could talk
0: <laughs> the whole day with <laughs> you. But I want
2: to be very respectful of your time. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we could get into on the technical side. I mean, some of the technologies within Bitcoin itself, the protocol, etc., um zero mq is one of the technologies underneath that was a big mm-hmm. component of that mm-hmm. uh peter Hingens, who basically took that to the next level of contribution was a key influencer and advisor to me before he passed away Mm -hmm. and so i built my whole company based on some of these decentralized protocols and thoughts over to you know from 2008 on Um, not because of bitcoin as well it was done in parallel for different reasons but also decentralization and edge networks at the core is there anything interesting from the programming perspective about bitcoin some of the libraries that are used within it for people to actually see something exercised at such a massive scale, where so much wealth and value is stored and tested every day, you know, for me, the zeroMQ is, is fantastic. I mean, yeah. I always point that out—that you want to see a library being tested and why you should use it. Take a look at this, right? It's a library that you don't have middleware to install for PubSub and other things. Yes. Are there any other things within Bitcoin itself? I mean, it's, itself?
1: A, it's it's a fascinating open source project because first of all. In terms of software development, developing a consensus-constrained protocol like Bitcoin is incredibly difficult. It is difficult on a whole other level. Um, a lot of people have compared it to doing software for aviation, for example, or aerospace. In that, Once you launch it into the network and it is subjected to adversarial conditions, it is very difficult to make changes. Just like trying to do maintenance on a Boeing engine in flight or trying to fix the probe that's halfway to Pluto um, through a 30-kilobit connection, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which might be the connection that actually has the problem. And so it, it requires a whole level of engineering that's kind of a class of its own. Bitcoin today is the largest deployment of public key cryptography into civilian hands we have ever seen. It is the first time that public key cryptography is being used on this scale. And as a result, it is changing the application of public key cryptography. So if you are a fan of applied cryptography, if that fascinates you, there has never been a project that has tested, stressed, and developed that area until now. From identity to digital signatures technology, to fundamental cryptographic primitives, to the development of cryptographic data structures like Merkle trees and things like that, uh, range proofs, zero-knowledge proofs, various filtering and compression optimization, cryptographic hash technologies, all of these are now being pushed in terms of the state of the art at a pace that's never happened before. So the amount of sheer invention that's coming out of these projects and then being immediately applied to a live production, global-scale network with more than $100 billion worth of value flowing over it in real time and people trying to hack it. This has never happened before. In terms of information security, cryptography, network systems, operational systems, resilience, peer-to-peer networking, network discovery, network mapping, routing protocols, All of these areas, you now have a playground, a sandbox that is just awe-inspiring in its implications and its breadth, and it's so exciting to be working in it. Um, There's room for people from every discipline of computer science and beyond, and it's now churning out PhDs faster than uh, many other industries. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also a great environment, although it's challenging, to be able to work and see kind of how you can take an idea, and then a few months later, you know, people are using it in a production network. I find that I'm learning faster than I've ever learned before. And the other thing is, I'm constantly surprised. I never know what's coming next. Uh, some really weird things happening in this space. Let me give you an example. Just about a couple of years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, Right in the middle of a normal day where nothing much else was happening, this person who had a pseudonym related to Harry Potter shows up on Bitcoin IRC channel, drops a Tor encrypted onion link to a white paper, disconnects, and is never heard from again. And on that Tor encrypted onion link is a white paper describing a protocol called Mimblewimble, which is named after a Harry Potter spell. That is a completely mind-blowing development in three or four different areas of computer science and applied cryptography. No one knows who this person is. No one was expecting this. Nothing had been hinted about this being developed. It just landed in the middle of this industry another with a Satoshi big thug. Moment. <laughs> another Satoshi moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these things keep happening. Whether it's Lightning Network and payment channels, or just non-stop. And it's really fascinating to see uh, where you think you understand where this is going, and suddenly out of left field comes another weirdness dropped in the midst of this. Some of the smartest people I have ever met work in this space. There's a reason why I don't do software development in this space. I arrived into this field in, in 2013, 2012, very excited to participate in any way I could. I was like, you know, in terms of coding ability on a worldwide scale, I'm up there. I'm pretty good at this. I've been doing it for 30 years in a variety of languages. I'll look around in the Bitcoin community and I'm like, ooh, uh, I just arrived in the big leagues. In this space, I'm mediocre at best at what I can do, because this space now has the best applied cryptographers in the world, working with the best mathematicians, and some of the best distributed systems programmers, and some of the best cryptographic primitive coders. And I need to find some other way to
0: contribute.
1: <laughs> so it is a bit intimidating, right? It's like It reminds me, it's the computer science equivalent of this uh, one photo from the 1920s, which has... Einstein and Fermi and and all of these right. physics greats. And mm-hmm. it's like 28 of the 29 people in this photo got a Nobel Prize. Right. And you think, ooh, Bus hurt to be number 29. <laughs> the only <laughs> one who didn't. Um, <laughs> isn't that another photo from that or a related
2: conference where you have Feynman talking to... Extra or something. And Einstein is so in was, the I it was one, one, was one leaning against he was the wall.
1: terrified. One was <laughs> it,
2: leaning against the barrister of a staircase and the other was yes, standing up in front of him. And right. Just a silhouette of the two talking. It's yeah. An iconic photo.
1: We're having <laughs> that moment in computer science and specifically in cryptography now. And some of the greatest minds in our field are now forging new paths and creating new things. And it's, it's inspiring. And intimidating, but it's, it's really mostly inspiring to be surrounded by such greatness and to be reading these papers and knowing you're not going to even understand half of it on their third reading, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: And the, the key part, I guess, for people to take away that this is tested in real life, like you said. So yes. instead of getting a security... Uh, certificate, there's, you can just put the code right against the
1: code that's running
2: on Bitcoin. Yeah, there's and nothing theoretical <laughs>
1: about this. <laughs> yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the most exciting thing. This is no longer a toy. And people are beginning to accept that it's no longer a toy. And it brings a whole set of responsibilities. But at the same time, it also means that we're getting to find out how these things operate at scale. And it's a journey of discovery. And it's, it's fascinating.
0: So I know you said that you're not really keen to predict where Bitcoin's going to go next, but what would you like to see in the space?
1: So I, I think for me, the biggest pressure right now is to strengthen the privacy protections in the base layer, especially around issues of fungibility, and make sure that we can deliver stronger anonymity and privacy protections as a core part of the protocol. There's already a lot of work being done on that with confidential transactions, range proofs, specifically bullet proofs, Taproot, Graftroot, and a couple of other technologies on layer one, and then on layer two with things like Lightning Network and the use of encrypted onion-routed payment channels at scale. Um, The reason we need to fix these things is we uh, had an unfortunate lesson on the internet, which was the first version, IPv4, was insecure in the base layer, and We are still paying the price for that, and it is what allowed the internet to become a global surveillance machine. And we can't easily fix that in the second layer. It is a lot harder to fix that in layers above. Um, so I am hoping we don't repeat that mistake. Privacy is technically expensive, but it is fundamental to what we are doing here. and We need to get it right in the base protocol. Because otherwise, it will be very difficult to fix later on. Which has nothing to do with where the price of Bitcoin will go, or whether you should invest now or later. (laughs) um, We've got a much bigger long-term picture here, which is, where do we go in terms of the future of money as a fundamental social technology in our lives? and i think what people don't realize is they think that bitcoin is the digital money to compare with the analog money we have today that is not the case analog money is going to be eradicated within the next 20 years very deliberately in fact in many places cash will disappear everywhere and there's a very good reason why they're trying to do that and that's because of control So now the question becomes, we will live in a world where all money will be digital, only digital, and there will not be analog money. And that means we will go from a thousand years or more of untraceable peer-to-peer anonymous transactions, which we had with cash, which was a healthy way of running a society, to centralized, surveillance-based, and very tightly controlled totalitarian digital money. Or peer-to-peer, open, decentralized money that is controlled by people. Those two options are very stark in their differences. And if we don't get that answer right, we will not be able to sustain democracy in the future. If you can control people's financial interactions, and if you can micromanage the flow of money through an economy and turn people, corporations, associations, unions, groups off, at the flick of a switch, then all of the other capabilities, freedoms, institutions become irrelevant. Every dictator out there is looking to tighten the screws on money, and we need to break that stranglehold. We are literally at a crossroads that is critical today on how we choose where we go forward. The problem isn't that if we have money that's not in the control of governments, terrorists will use it. The problem is, if we have money that can be controlled totally by governments, our governments will be the terrorists. And we will be at their absolute mercy. If you look at what's happening in China, look at what's happening in Russia, um, there are a few steps ahead of us, but we're catching up quickly. And this is a very dangerous future. And most people are oblivious to this. I grew
2: up in communist Poland, so I know what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, the Stasi were rank amateurs compared to what you can do today with a combination of Mm -hmm. AI and facial recognition, and most importantly, the ability to have complete control and surveillance over payments. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. a very dangerous future.
2: I always remember the scenes in the the movie Lives of Others where they're ripping out the wires from behind the... Uh, wallpaper right, uh-huh. as they discovered that their apartments, you know, bugged, uh, bugged So yeah, uh, different tech back then. Yes. That same thing. Right. Okay. All right. Wow. Well, that was awesome. Yeah. What a great ending. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> that was an honor and pleasure.
1: Oh thank you so much.